everybody. This is Eric Mann. You're on Voices from the Front Lines. You're a national movement building show. I'm in studio with Channing Martinez, producer and the co-host of the show. Ricky Herrera's on controls. And Nina Simone is always in control. Uh, last night, because I was so agitated that I had nothing else to do, I watched again What Happened, Miss Simone, this amazing Liz Arbus film about Nina Simone. Uh, I'll tell you, the deeper you go, of course, into the black, Latino, and indigenous and third world traditions, you're just going to stay permanently tore up because of the United States white settler state. What a true, true genius, and Lena Simone, that is, and what a sort of amazing freedom fighter. Today's show is going to be about when they see us, but it's all totally intertwined. One more thing I want to say before we get into the show about when, when they see us is there's a line in, in the film where she says, Nina Simone says, you know, my best friend was Louise Hansberry, and uh, she was the one who taught me about Marx and Lenin. Lenin. Get it? So people don't understand the deep relationship of communism and the black liberation struggle, and uh, that, again... Lorraine Hansberry, I'm sorry, was her absolutely best friend and who died in her early 30s. So more on Nina Simone next time, but uh, great, great love for her, and I think about her all the time. Now, today's show is going to be a, a reintroduction, a re-engagement, a re-analysis of the amazing When They See Us by Ava DuVernay that's been on Netflix and will continue to be. But we're going to be focusing a lot on the concept of demand development. That is to say, this film is about the Central Park Five, or now called the Exonerated Five, which is very good. It's, it's a film about four young black men and one Latino, and I'll tell you more if you haven't seen it, who were completely falsely accused of rape, assault, attempted murder, and everything else, and who served anywhere from 8 to about 15 years in prison for, of course, a crime they didn't commit. But what do we say about that? What are we going to do about that? That's the question, right? And I'm going to make the case today, 
and then Ricky, I want to go out with some music, so I center myself for a minute. We're going to make the case that there are two big demands I'd like you to think about that not just this story, but the story of blacks in America can only lead you to conclude. Number one, to bring not just the U.S. government, but all U.S. government agencies up on charges of genocide in violation of the 1948 genocide statutes at the United Nations. And I mean that, so I'm now announcing, but even though we didn't discuss it, that this, because we all have discussed it, that Strategy Center is going to do a very serious analysis of the genocide statutes. And we're going to go to the important book by William L. Patterson. And this summer, we're going to study the book in relationship to certainly the Los Angeles Police Department and the Los Angeles Sheriff's Department and the Probation Department and the Prison Department. The second demand that I want you to take very seriously is we have a demand for no police. Basically, we have a demand for no police, but no police on LA uh, USD schools, no police on the buses, and no police on the trains uh, of the MTA. But interestingly, because people are going to say, well, we agree, but how are you going to get there? So we have a very interesting reform demand, quote, quote, that's going to scare the hell out of the LAPD, which is, all right, we will start by cutting every police agency by 50%, and then 50%, and then 50%, until we get them as close down to zero as mathematically possible. The question to you is, would you support a campaign for no police in the schools and no police on the buses? Would you support a campaign to, to evaluate charges of, of genocide against the U.S. government, against the prison system, and against the police? Would you support uh, uh, an actual campaign to begin by reducing the Los Angeles school police budget by 50% immediately and then moving to another 50% and so forth? We're going to go to the phones at about 345, but let me say this. I'm asking each of you to have the, both the integrity and the discipline to address the specific questions we're asking, which we'll repeat before we get on the show, just like if you don't get it right, you're off Jeopardy, uh, which is, <clears throat> do you support the concept and the, the are you excited about the Strategy Center evaluating charges of genocide against all the different police agencies, in particular genocide against the black community in Los Angeles? And two, do you support no police in the schools, no police on the trains and buses? And do you support a program to cut the state prison budget in half, the detectives in half, the police in half, the prison guards union in half, all the, the spending in half now? Okay, so that's where we're going with this. So that's sort of, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, I'm telling you what I'm asking you to do. I'm telling you that I'm going to make the case to you. At the end, I'm asking you for a verdict of guilty and a verdict of yes, you want to support the work of the Labor Community Strategy Center. The second thing I want to say is that I don't think people really fully understand. Channing and I are volunteers at the station. We both work at the Labor Community Strategy Center. But we're actually putting in almost two full days on the show. That is to say, my Tuesday, I wake up in the morning and begin preparation on the show. Channing does the same. We start on Monday. We research. We read. So when we go to Fund Drive and when we ask your participation, you need to know how seriously we take the show. 
Okay. Now, the next point I want to say is that the, the question of using the concept of drafts, that is to say, we did the show last week on Now They See Us. When They See Us. When They See Us. I'm so sorry. When They See Us. And then we had it transcribed. Then I've been spending about six, seven hours reading the transcript and going over it and seeing oh, that's good, but no, I shouldn't have taken that turn right then, or that's good, but I want to reflect, rephrase it another way. So this is going to be a second draft. We may do a third, but we'll, we'll start with a second to sharpen our own understandings of what we said last week, plus having thought about it. So interestingly, the people who probably listen to the show the most are chanting on myself. <laughs> so we take the show very seriously. So with that, Ricky, if you could, Ricky Herrera, if you would take uh, a music break, and then I'm going to begin reading and discussing the more refined understanding of the concept.
God bless you, Nia Simone. You're with us always. So here goes the beginning of our efforts to discuss uh, when they see us. We're deeply moved and shaken by the amazing four-part miniseries on Netflix, When They See Us by Ava DuVernay. The film is brilliant and breathtaking, and that you can barely breathe when you watch it. It's a tremendous contribution to the movement. When They See Us is a story of the Central Park Five, five young, four black, one Puerto Rican boys, who are thrown together in a totally contrived charge of raping a white woman that led to the racist hysteria, arrest, trial, imprisonment, and conviction of Raymond Santana, Kevin Richardson, Antron McRae, Youssef Salam, and Corey Wise. Ava DuVernay takes you through their story, their lives, in such painful detail that it's one of the most phenomenal exposés about how black children, Puerto Rican children, Latino children are imprisoned from the cradle to the grave. And of course, indigenous children who have been uh, imprisoned from the cradle to the grave from the minute the Europeans came. It's a description of a system so heinous that even if you're a liberal, you know revolution is the only solution, not necessarily in the form of an insurrection, although that will be part of it, but through the most radical structural changes. In this case, putting the system on trial, convicting the U.S. government of genocide against black people, the black nation, and cutting the police state in half, and then a half again, and then again. Now, for the last five years, the Strategy Center has been carrying out a campaign for urban reconstruction with our five core demands. Free public transportation, no police in the OAUSD schools, no police on MTA buses and trains, stop MTA attacks on black passengers, we're getting 50 and 60 and 70% of all the tickets, arrests, citations, harassments, and no cars in OA. The result, we've had some general support and interest, but not really an effective mass mobilization and virtually no support from liberal Democrats. Of course, they are the cause of the problem, which is why they can't support the solution. Now, our demands are radical, structural, winnable, and urgently needed and have a logic as a coherent plan of climate and police, police and cars as the two main obstacles to human liberation in LA, both symbolically and real. Now we call it the campaign for urban reconstruction as in the reconstruction period after slavery when the racist South was under Northern military occupation and for a moment the black slaves were ostensibly free and were significantly free as well. Now, I urge you to read W.E.B. Du Bois' Black Reconstruction in America for the true story of how the U.S., not just the South, created the racist re-enslavement complex that hovers over black people today. I also encourage you to see my own book, Katrina's Legacy, with its 40-page short history of black people, History Can Guide Us, and black resistance from 1619 until today. Now, the campaign for urban reconstruction is framed by our larger demands and slogans. We want the social justice state, not the police state, the climate justice state, not the warfare state. Now, a film can make people think to be open to new ideas, 
But it takes a radical movement to bring demands to the fore and ask people if the crimes of Now They See Us move you. What do you think is the problem and what are you willing to do? Now, Uncle Tom's Cabin by Harriet Beecher Stowe was part of the movement to abolish slavery. Richard Wright's native son called out for the abolition of U.S. racism and Jim Crow. But how can we build a movement for the abolition of police and prisons? We can't allow, now they see us, to be used as a plaything by the most timid reformers, focusing on innocence, for instance, while the vast majority of prisoners were guilty of doing something, even if it was being black. The demand for better prosecutors, more humane prison guards to lock up women and men as caged animals. Did you know there are 201,000 women in U.S. prisons, more than half, more than all the people in U.S. prisons in 1964. In 1964, there were only, a, only 188,000 people in prison when the Civil Rights Act was first passed. Now there's 201,000 women in prison and 2.5 million prisoners. So our hearts break when they see us, but then people propose putting cameras on police. Now, the, cam- the police have killed 406 people in L.A. this year, and we're only in June. Do you want to get a picture of them? Why do you need a camera? Civilian review boards, which by their definition, only review the police brutality after it happens, and they almost always vindicate the police. Now, the reason for that is because the laws, because we are a nation of laws, say that the police are there to protect us, and therefore the police must be protected legally. So it's always considered legitimate force because they have to allow the police a license to kill. So don't demand cameras, please. Don't demand civilian review boards. They have been tried and failed. Demand cutting it at least by 50%. Now, all of these are not even half measures. They keep the police prison state intact and its legitimacy and ideological control still firmly on top of us. Now, a radical reduction of the police prison state and eventual abolition rests on the theory that for black people in particular, Latinos, indigenous people, all third world peoples, and society in general, even the most decent whites included, not all, The existence of the police is unreformable because the police state is the U.S. government itself. I repeat, the existence of the police cannot be reformed because the police state is the U.S. government itself. Society would be better without the police. Yes, this would create new problems and challenges for sure. But still ask yourself if after watching this film, you can really defend the police state. Now you're going to say, oh, oh, oh. I don't defend the police state, but, and as soon as we get to but, that's how white folks do it, liberals. Yes, but, the but means no. The but means I do not plan to cut the police. The but is how we're going to do it. No, the but is I don't really agree. So charging the U.S. government, the LAPD, the prison wardens and guards union with genocide against black people. Now, I'm going to deal with the issue of genocide. The term genocide is not to be thrown around lightly. The United Nations Genocide Convention, which was established in 1948, of course partly because of the German genocide against the Jewish people and also against 
uh, Roma and uh, so-called gypsies and communists, but the genocide has to be against a specific people, um, they created a statute so we could evaluate genocide in any particular context. So here's the definition, the legal definition. Acts committed with intent to destroy, in whole or in part, a national, ethnic, racial, or religious group. Remember, in whole or in part. They don't have to kill every single Jew, every single black person, every single indigenous for it to be genocide. Including the systematic harm or killing of its members, deliberately imposing living conditions that seek to bring about its physical destruction in whole or in part, preventing births or forcibly transferring children out of the group to another group. And the horrible scenes in, uh, when they see us about young people being transferred to prisons 200, 300 miles away from their family immediately is transferring children out of the group to another group, including often predominantly white communities where the prisons are situated because then the white people become like slave catchers, which is what they like to do. Now, I ask you sisters and brothers of the jury, having lived in the black community, for those of you who have, and I have, in the U.S., or having seen when they see you, are you ready to issue a verdict of guilty against the U.S. government and its police state and convict them of genocide? Now, for some of you, yes. You don't need any further proof. You heard the statute. You know the reality. We're not making this up. But for some of you, yes. And others, let us continue the argumentation to win our case. The first major theme of when they see us is that the system is rigged. And no matter when black people indigenous people, Chicano and Latino people, do or don't do whatever what. They will be harassed, brutalized, beaten, arrested, convicted, and imprisoned for the system now has uh, more than 2.5 million prisoners. Now, as Channing Martinez observed, No, my mom didn't give me the talk because in some ways she didn't have to. We saw it on TV, we saw it in our neighborhood, and we all knew to be careful because the police hated you. In the first episode of When They See Us, we see what is the nightmare of the racist reenslavement system being stopped by police in mass, being rounded up, taken only to be beaten and forced to confess to crimes you didn't do, being falsely promised you can be free if you cooperate when cooperation requires basically robbing Peter to pay Paul and trading your entire soul for freedom. These scenes at first affected me the most because despite being an organizer and knowing the system is rigged, there's always a little ounce left that allows you to hope just a little bit that there's some validity to the system and their so-called regulations. The system wants you to believe that it can be reformed using the very tools in the system itself. But as Audre Lorde says, the master's tools never, I'm sorry, the master's tools will never dismantle the master's house. The system says you have the right to deny search and seizure without a warrant, the right to an attorney before answering questions. 
the, remi- the right to remain silent as a minor when your parent is not in the room. The system says you have the right to ask the officer if they currently have any charges against you and if they plan to detain you based on the charges. Now, don't get me wrong. These tools are, in fact, very important. But as we say at the Strategy Center and as we say in the movement, the system makes up the laws, and when the laws don't fit their agenda, they simply make up new ones. When we first saw... When we first showed the first two episodes of the series at Strategy and Soul Theater at King and Crenshaw, of course, in conjunction with Black Lives Matter LA and their youth vanguard, I said that night after the film, there's obviously no way as a movement we can reach every single person to make sure they know their rights and make sure they voice their rights while in an interrogation room. There's absolutely no way. Even if in some alternative universe, we could. There's a, there's no guarantee that the officer would respect your rights. The system is rigged. We need to bring charges of genocide against every U.S. institution and to demand an end to all police, beginning with a 50% reduction of police, um, in all police prisons, prisoners, DAs, detectives now. In the film, when the young men repeat over and over what they knew, which was nothing, and that they were not involved, they were slammed against the wall. They were essentially beaten into submission. The system is rigged, and the only viable next move is towards revolution. We don't want better treatment inside of apartheid. We want an end to the apartheid. That should be pretty obvious, in my opinion. Seeing the film, for me, um, made our demand for no police all the more important. Sure, there's the temptation to make the original DA, the judge, the prosecutor, suffer by taking away their spoils of war. But that's not enough. We need to, we need to change the entire system because it's tearing families apart. When they see us brought up for me repressed memories of my uncle from Belize, who was, in, uh, who was in prison for most of his life when he was here in the United States, that is. And then when he was finally released, he was deported. I've never... Well, let me, let me step back before. It is possible that I might have met my uncle before my memory stems, as in when I'm two, three, or some you know time in that my life that I don't remember. Um, but for my knowledge right now, I've never met my uncle. Um, and just even the thought about our families being ripped apart and that being a purpose, um, an integral part of the survival of the system that you have to be a part because when you come together, then you want to start a revolution. So that was the voice of Channing Martinez. That this is the voice of Eric Mann. Channing and I work together very closely, obviously, and we can sort of finish each other's sentences and write each other's sentences, and and this is one integrated concept. So you're on KPFK. We're going to keep going. Ninety point seven FM, ninety eight point seven FM in Santa Barbara, streaming live on the web at KPFK. Channing, can you explain again about the podcasts and how they could be listening after the show? Sure. You can actually go to SoundCloud right now and you'll see last week's podcast. Um, and we are on 
not Apple Apple Podcasts now. They just did the whole restructuring right, of their, right. you know, Apple. Anyways, <laughs> um, so SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, um, Stitcher app, which is on your phone, um, and of course on our website, which is VoicesFromTheFrontlines.com. If you could send us an email. Eric at VoicesFromTheFrontlines.com, Channing at TheStrategyCenter.org. could put, them, put us both on the email. That would mean a lot. You know, one of the things we're doing in, in all the work we do is to ask who's out there. We're still not getting the level of response that we'd like. We do get really good response during the fun drive, by the way, where we go to the phones. Again, you don't just call in. You say how much you love the show, which obviously means a lot to us. But we are trying to build a, an email list. That means a lot. Today, we, you know, we always try to get it on Monday, but reality is we, we get it around 10 or 11 on Tuesday. The good thing about that is that's probably when you're paying attention to, really, oh, my God, today's Tuesday. They're on at 3. And we do work on designing the, the email blast, and we write the text, and we send drafts back and forth. So we're working harder than you. All we're asking you to do is go on voicesfromthefrontlines.com, and click on register and register. And then, as you'll see uh, today, send us an email at info at thestrategycenter.org if you want to get involved in this campaign, which we're going to describe in more detail. If you listen to the podcast, you're listening to it now, of course, but if you listen to the podcast, anything you do, it means so much if you just tell us, I'm out there, I'm alive, I'm listening, what can I do to help, right? Uh, again, Eric at Voices from the Frontlines, Channing at thestrategycenter.org. is also at Eric Mann Speaks for Twitter. So let's make something happen, okay? We'd like to hear from you. Yes, Channing. Um, sorry, I forgot one. And the last thing is each week we are now making Voices an entire production. And so last week we did not do it, but this week, you know, we're streaming. We're both streaming on Facebook Live and we typically put together an entire slideshow based on the themes that are we're talking about in the show. So for this week's show, you know, you'll see the actual Central Park Five pictures of them. You'll see uh, Ava DuVernay. You'll see our demands. You'll see our logos. And you'll see all types of images related to these that you can actually learn from. And you'll be able to visualize the history in the making. That's great. And just to also say finally that we have a lot of events at the Strategy and Soul Bookstore and the Strategy and Soul Film Theater. And it, and it, if you're on the voices list, you'll also be invited to those events. So for all those reasons, go on voicesfromthefrontlines.com right now and do all the things you're supposed to do, okay? We're going to continue this conversation. Uh, so here's where we are so far. We framed the conversation. We're framing the two demands. The genocide demand is new, but it's not really new. Uh, I'm going to take a minute on uh, we charge genocide and what the relevance of that is. After World War II, the United States, claiming it was the master of the free world, initiated the United Nations in an effort to hope that the United Nations could perhaps control uh, some of the wars, because the United States was then in such a powerful position that it felt it could, through the United Nations it could pretty much control the world. It wasn't a democratic concept. But in 1951, 
an amazing group of black and white communists uh, led by the amazing William L. Patterson. You should check out Gerald Horn's book on him. I think it's called Black Revolutionary, but you could check. Uh, he wrote, he was an attorney, a communist attorney. I have to say this parenthesis. My mom always wanted me to be a lawyer. It was very important for her. So once I said to her mom, but I'm a communist. And she said, so you could be a communist lawyer. And she was right. I could have been. <laughs> she had a point. It doesn't matter. As long as lawyers in the subject, that's all she wanted to know. So William L. Patterson was a communist lawyer. And he took the statutes of the United Nations and he applied it to the case of the Negro in the United States. And he, he created a, a 200-page indictment. The book is an indictment with chapter, 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 every single day in the United States of particular abuse against black people. In many ways, Ava DuVernay's When They See Us is just doing that. From the first frame of the film to the last, there are thousands, if you watch it slow and keep stopping it, thousands of examples of what a genocide looks like and thousands of examples of what a police state looks like. So we at the Strategy Center are trying to do something about it, folks. You know, there's a lot of shows on KPFK that are great that I, I would say are issue-oriented or opinion-oriented. This show is called Voices from the Front Lines, where the purpose of the show is to say there's something we can do about every problem. We don't raise any problem without having somebody working on the problem. We don't have an analysts about the battery of women. Not that that's not important, but we have Peace Over Violence, who's doing amazing work around the battery of women. So there's hope, and you go down and check them out, by the way, amazing organization. They're doing wonderful work. They have their own hotline. So what I'm getting to is there's got to be hope, okay? And this show is trying to give you some hope. Now, I think for a lot of our listeners, certainly for our black and Latino and indigenous listeners, women listeners, all the victims of U.S. genocide, the flood of memories coming back that I think this film is going to bring up makes it very hard to watch, which is why it's such a great film. The closer you are to the problem, the more excruciating it is. I was just corresponding with a woman who does wonderful work supporting political prisoners. She said the film is almost unwatchable, and she had to see it in small doses. We commiserated. As I was watching the last episode, I was not just crying, but screaming out loud as a former prisoner myself and a prison's right organizer, and knowing so many of these brothers and sisters as real people who are still in prison, and though they were not freed by a miracle, as this film shows, it was a miracle that the person, Matthias, who actually committed the crime, confessed to it, and that there was DNA. Even then, there was opposition to getting the, the five out. So I'm not in any way belittling this amazing miracle, but if you're waiting for all the prisoners who have been falsely accused or accused of ridiculous, not crimes, simply master's laws, loitering, open container, marijuana, speeding, yeah, stealing something that might get you three months in jail but got them 25 years in prison. If, you, if you're waiting for the perpetrator to go to the police and to confess, 
nobody's going to get out of prison, very, very few people. So the point I'm getting to is that we have to not wait for individual cases to get people out. We've got to get a million black people out of prison right now. That's the demand. Free the U.S. 2.5 million, get them all out of prison. Okay? So yes, one million black prisoners, 500,000 Latino prisoners, and yes, one million white prisoners. How is it possible the prison state is still expanding and we can't stop it? Now it's 818-985-5735. It's 336. We're going to go to the phones at 345. I'll continue with this conversation. Remember, you're calling up to say, I agree or disagree with the demand about cutting the police by 50%. I agree or disagree with the idea of at least investigating the concept of bringing charges of genocide against all the police agencies. Those are the two things I want to discuss. Police on the schools, I want to discuss police on the buses. That's what you're calling about, okay? You can also call about Ava DuVernay's show, but we would really like you to relate to the demands that we're trying to get you to pay attention to. Now, here's an example. Los Angeles is suffering from a major crisis of funding and publication, public education. The Strategy Center did support, enthusiastically, Measure EE. The reason I say enthusiastically is we had a lot of concerns about that uh, measure. We do not support property taxes, especially right now, on uh, individual homes when so many black people are in danger of Latinos and losing their homes. Uh, it wasn't, in our opinion, a progressive tax. We also felt that it should be targeting some of the police spending. But that's true. But there was a real ballot measure on the ballot, and the teachers' union really needed it. The school board really needed it. We chose to say, on this case, we're going to support it, and we did. And we're glad we did. But here's what wasn't said, and that we wanted to wait until after the election because we didn't want to in any way hurt the election. The school police department is an annual budget of, close your eyes, think, what is the annual budget of the Los Angeles School Police Department? Answer, $67 million a year, which over the next 10 years is how much? Come on. You can do it 10 times 67 million. 670 million. That is seven-tenths of a billion over the next 10 years. Can you imagine that? That's the same amount of money, more, than the proposition was trying to get, which is $500 million. So this is not just the elephant in the bathtub. This is the cop in the bathtub, the cop in your head. Now, if now they see us, what if we began by cutting that budget in half, which would be a major financial, political, and moral challenge to the police, and also force a cut in the police force? Now, right now, the Los Angeles School Police Department has how many sworn police officers? 350. 126 non-sworn safety officers, which means they're still in the schools, and 34 civilian staff. Let's begin by cutting each number now. Okay, it's pretty good math. 350 subtracted 175. You get it? So I'm, I'm getting serious here, folks. Do you support cutting the Los Angeles School Police Department by 50%? Do you support cutting their $67 million budget by 50%? 818-985-5735.
I'm going to pretty much end here because I want to tell you what the, the long article is going to do, and I am working on translating this into an article. The first part is going to show all the hundreds and hundreds of levels of abuses that the film shows because those are the components of genocide and components of the police state. So if you have, in fact, a detective that you begin with the arrest and the brutality, of course, on the arrest, the violation of people's rights even in the arrest process, the kid that said, I'm just going to be with my friend. They said, well, you're going to leave your friend alone? So they say no. So he has to go and he accompanies his friend and ends up with 15 years in prison. What about the abuse of the detectives? Here's an important demand. What if? Did you know what percentage of people who are brought up on charges get the jury trial that you read about when you were in fourth grade? The answer is 5%, and they're almost all white and wealthy. Or after that is of color and wealthy. Almost nobody can afford a jury trial. People can't afford to get out of, out of uh, jail, let alone prison. What if we demanded that no one could be convicted without a jury trial? That's a radical demand that would really mean something. They can't prosecute all the people that they have in the slave ship. So what are we going to do about that? So I'm going to let uh, Gil and O.A., Luis and Moreno Valley, and my friend Mars. But Channing, you get the last word on this round. Tie it back to the campaign, and then we're going to go to the phones. Um, sure. Yeah. Well, first thing is that we just I just received a pop-up comment on Mevo from Leanne saying, I support no police on the buses and trains and no police at all. That Leanne is or, a hell of a, a cut a, in the police. I can't remember. It just good. showed me for like five seconds. Thanks, Leanne. Um, I mean it. Thanks, Leanne. And yeah, you know, the, it's the only logical move after you see this film is that there's no reform. If you get a new prosecutor, as you explained in the article, that's the title of their job is prosecutor. Right, right. That's right. <laughs> uh, and the only, you know, one thing I was trying to play with words last week, but I couldn't quite figure it out, is like, you know, the only good prosecutor in the United States is one who doesn't prosecute. That's right. Um, so, sure, if you're going to get in there and risk your life and figure out how to stall the entire system, great. But that's still not enough. We need to get rid of the system. Um, you know, so that's why we're saying a 50% cut now and just cut the entire system. There's no, you know, if it's like trying to fix a house that's built on a bad foundation. If the foundation is bad, you're spending so much money to fix the foundation, you might as well just get a new house. Harry Belfonte said, house built on a weak foundation will not stand on no. So, you got it. <laughs> That's right. Uh, so, uh, Gil in L.A., now you're with Eric Mann and Channing Martinez on Voices from the Frontlines. Hi, Gil. Hello, how are you doing? Good. Thanks for calling Voices. Yes, um, I'm, I'm choosing the side. I disagree with um, cutting the school police budget. What For starters, what are you going to do with the takers, the ones that, that um, the, the ones that, um, kill, rob, commit crimes against people in our community. How, do, what, how are you going to handle, for lack of a better term, individuals like this? Okay, thanks for the question, and we'll give you an answer. Uh, there's 350 police right now. Uh, we are working in five Los Angeles high schools, focusing on three. 
There's nobody been killed in the high schools. There's no, uh, you're talking about, you know, it's one is to create an, an overstatement of the crime. We know there's crime in low-income communities that are colonized. That's not the question. But why do you, where did this demand come from? Did you know that they were arresting? See, I mean, how quickly you move to this hypothetical murderers and everybody. But you didn't move to that there were 38,000 young people arrested, arrested for coming to school late by police, many of which uh, were put in handcuffs. So we're in the schools talking to parents and talking to students, and a significant number of them are saying they don't want the police in the schools. So you have to trust a little bit that the strategy center doesn't just make stuff up. We work with the masses, we work with the people, and that's where the demand no police in the school came from, from the students in the school. Can I? Yes, Channing, and then Luis, we're going to go to Luis and Moreno about um, The other great thing that we mentioned last week is that there's an epidemic with every single institution having their own police force, and right. it is ridiculous. If the city of Los Angeles is already spending 50% of its budget on the police, not any, and I'm not trying to justify it, then why do you need a whole police force dedicated to the schools if there's a shortage on things that are very necessary in education? There is no need, absolutely. Um, on top of the argument you've already made that every single you know institution is finding this trend of having its police force. The schools have their own police force. Some of the hospitals have their own police force. Some of the public benefits offices have their own police That's force. Right. It's ridiculous. And they all now are going to the state and saying, I want the right to prosecute. I want the right to my own court. The MT has its own court. Remember, under slavery, every plantation owner had its own police force. And that's what you're asking for. Let's just be honest. Uh, Luis in Moreno Valley? Yes, uh, good afternoon. Good afternoon. Of course, uh, I'm listening to your show like everybody else here. I'm going to say guilty. You know, uh, I think if you went on a Fox News and asked the same question, you might get a, a different population, different statistics. But uh, I just want to say, as an educator myself, when when uh, when something goes wrong, there's yard personnel, there's principals, there's a lot of. And I can every school has like a, at least one or two assistant principals, and there's yard duty people who are assigned, and teachers themselves that do uh, yard duty. You know. Uh, they, they, they rotate. So when something goes wrong, you call the police. But as you, I think you made a really good argument already. The fact that the police are already there is discriminalizing, you know, the, the students just to begin with. That's all. I want to stay with that, Luis, and thank you. I was a public school teacher in, in the black community a uh, couple of centuries ago. You know, I've, I've worked... Uh, I did a lot of work with Frederick Douglass, and he was very influential <laughs> in, in my work, and a lot of other people, Denmark Vesey, and I want to thank my original teachers. But I was a public school teacher, and what you said, Luis, is absolutely right. There were, the normal things going on with the young people were, yeah, you need teachers who are good people and who work with people. There was uh, most of the time no threat to anybody. They were just normal kids. White kids are very violent. They do crazy stuff. They're all on whatever white drugs they like, and they don't have police all over them. There's, that's called boys will be boys or acting right. it out. And, you know, and the, the same behavior for a black kid is called willful defiance. Right. So 
very nice what you said, Luis, about that, that um, there's a really great story where at the Left Coast Forum that we're going to have this October, uh, I hope you'll, you'll tell them the date, uh, um, Dr. Melina Abdullah was speaking. And as she was speaking, uh, a black security officer, Arm, came to the mic and said, excuse me, I don't mean to interrupt you, but someone's car is parked in the wrong place. And she was very respectful, and she said, yeah, thank you, officer, that's very good. And then after you left, she says, do you need an armed person to tell you that your car is placed in the wrong place? <laughs> right. That we've reached the point where everybody's got a gun except us. So that was very nicely done, Dr. Medulla. And, uh, uh, okay, uh, Morris Long Beach. My hey, hello, uh, everybody. Uh, listen, I agree with all of your measures, but I think we should keep in mind who our audience is. Uh, the American people. We're talking about some folks who are trained, conditioned, and programmed to look at the world through an ethnocentric lens. Trained like Pablo the dog was trained by Sigmund Freud. These are our cultural norms. We have institutionalized our cognitive distance towards humanity. And that's just the way it is, my brother. Our racism and our bigotry are definitely corporate euphemisms. And it goes back to starting, in my opinion, 1452 with the Catholic Church's papal bull, but we'll forget all that. But for more relevant times, there's a book called 100 Years of Lynching by a guy named Ralph Ginsburg. It lists about just under 5,000 victims. It lists the names of the victims of the police department, how they turned them over to the mobs, and how people were really excited about, you know, bloodletting people of color. So we've got a long way to go, so we understand that we're trained like animals, and it's going to be tough to address that. Thanks for these moments. Thank you, Morris. You know, uh, Morris, could you, I uh, hope you're still on, if you tell us the name of the book again. Are you still there? Uh, yes, it's called 100 Years of Lynching by Ralph Ginsburg. They used to take the guy out of jail, put him up on of a course. Pole, tie him up on a, hello? Yeah, I'm listening. Yeah, they would take the victim out of jail, tie him up on a pole, you know, like they're hanging him. And let's say he weighed like 130 pounds, right, when they hung him. When they got through shooting him, he weighed like 165 pounds because people would shoot at him like targets, you know. So the lead, you know, when they took him down, add the lead to his flesh. And uh, that's, you know, that's just our culture. That's just how we roll. And uh, nothing personal about it. They used to, uh, it's an evil spirit in my opinion. In Europe, they used to hang little boys, little white boys, if they were caught stealing a handkerchief. So it's just the devil. But that's all it is. Thank you, Morris. And, and, you know, I take you very seriously. I mean, we're very lucky to have you as part of the show. I, I hope you understand Channing and I have great love for you and great admiration for your inability, your ability to get in and out to make the point you want to make. To build on your point, very tragic is uh, with the murder of Andy Goodman and Mickey Schwerner and James Cheney in the summer of 1964, they went to investigate, I believe, a burning of a church, and they were arrested by the police, brought in uh, to prison. They were let out at 3 in the morning where a racist mob was waiting for them, and they were murdered. So Morris's point, you know, we used to have a slogan uh, uh, in the 60s. We used to say, blue by day, white by night. And what we meant that is the the police were there during the day and the Klan was there at night, and they were the same people, that most of the Klansmen were police. So all this is very, very important. And uh, was that Keanu who wrote, when an institution knows it's creating oppressive systems, it will be 
up its police force along the way. Was it who did that? Was you, Ricky? <laughs> yes, you are, Ricky. You just got to work on it. Just start typing. It's just you just can edit it and stuff. It works out. But thanks, Kiana. That was really good. Uh, so look, let, let me tell you where we're going with this, folks. And I, I hope when we, we go home, I want to spend the last three or four minutes chanting, trying to get people to do something. Why don't you start or at all, once again, all the avenues we're asking people to participate in? Because when we go back, we'd like to see some emails. We'd like to see some something. So let's walk through everything they can do to let us know they want to participate. Sure. The first thing is you can go on to our website, voicesfromthefrontlines.com. And you can sign up for our newsletter, and you will get our newsletter every uh, Tuesday morning um, that there is a show happening. Um, And then there are a bunch of things that you can do via social media. We definitely like tweets, and we definitely like conversations via social media. And so, you know, there's a few folks that go on to the live stream and watch the live stream and actually do a lot of commenting during the show. And if it's a short enough comment that I can read it in, you know, 10 or 20 seconds, then I can definitely read that on the air as it pops up. Right. Um, And that's one way of contributing to the actual uh, show itself. Um, The other thing is we would love for you to – I don't know if I – Go ahead. Should I talk about membership? No. Okay. That's why. Yeah, 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 yeah. Just you don't. Yeah, you don't have to have dues, but yeah, you can. You mean ask people to join the fight for the soul of the city? Yes. So if you want, you can go to the fight for the soul of the cities dot com, and you'll see a bunch of ask there, including if you are interested in becoming a member, and it'll tell you a lot more in a lot more detail about this campaign, and it even goes into detail about each specific demand, um, which is great. Well, I have another one. Uh, this summer, we have an amazing uh, group. Oh, by the way, I got another really good, uh, totally unsolicited one that said, sounds good, Daddy. This is good stuff. Oh, that's my daughter, Melinda. Uh, <laughs> we're lucky as hell. I mean, we have a very civil rights family here, folks. So it could be any one of my daughters or my wife, and we're very lucky. that That's what our family believes in, and uh, Melinda's also helping us on the podcasts. Um, this summer... We have an amazing set of organizers. We have the six core organizers at the Strategy Center. We then have two organizers in training, Anaya Logan and Emily Zamora. Then we have just accepted 15 mainly black and Latina interns from the Los Angeles high schools who are going to be working at least two days a week, including Saturdays and and probably Wednesdays. Uh, that means on Saturdays we may have 25 people out in the field on the demands of the campaign. If you are in a labor union, if you are in a community group that has real members, that has meetings during the summer, we'd love to come and talk to you. You don't have to agree with us. But if you just invite us and say, all right, you have a serious campaign for no police in the schools, a serious campaign, we get you, you've been the bus riders union, if you say no police on the buses and trains, you must have some bus riders and train riders who are saying that. Then back to the earlier caller, where'd you get this from? Because the students are saying, can we please get this police out of the school? Where'd you get the buses and trains from? From bus riders and train riders who were being arrested for not having any money on the train because Mayor Garcetti and Zevi Arslavsky and Mark Ridley Thomas 
work together to raise the monthly pass from $75 to $100, which people cannot afford. Therefore, they sneak on the trains. Then they're arrested or fined and kicked off the train, and they don't have the $75 or whatever it is to pay that fine. So if you want us to talk to your group, send us an email at eric at voicesfromthefrontlines.com, channing at thestrategycenter.org. And we would come to your group and just have a more in-depth conversation. I, I wanted to end up with saying, uh, going back to something Morris said, because I wanted to, I, I didn't punctuate enough. Morris, we agree that imperialism, after a while, creates savagery. You know, it basically destroys, you have to understand, the indigenous, the 100 million indigenous people that were 100 million on this continent they had issues, they had wars, they did cruel and bad things, but they didn't commit genocide against each other. They had very advanced civilizations, even when they had slavery, which I'm not saying is good. They actually had slaves who were integrated into communities. There was not a series of perpetual slavery by race and birth. So yes, imperialism demoralizes and dehumanizes people which means that we have virtually no chance of stopping global warming with the present state of the humanity or the dishumanity that imperialism is creating. That's what Morris's point was, is that, but we are in the process, let me tell you our main strategy. What, we have one minute? Less. All right, less. it's okay. Our main strategy right now, training leaders, training people who do get it to be better at what they do, to build a base and never walk alone, to be group builders, to be political educators, propagandists, and agitators, to be Dr. King, to be Nina Simone, to be John Brown, to be Fannie Lou Hamer, who was a sharecropper. Leaders are so powerful that the system moves to kill them. And we're training leaders for a real revolution in real time. If you're interested, I think my name is Eric at Voices from the Frontlines. I think his name is Channing at... TheStrategyCenter.org. All right. For Kiana, for Ricky Herrera, Kiana Williams, Channing Martinez, Eric Mann, and for Nina Simone. Let's do this together, okay? I wish I could share...